0: Uh, this is the third lecture of uh, the lectures on am Titan seven uh, Jewish historians, famous historians, and perhaps the f- most famous of them all, whether you like them or not, uh, and that's Gratz, Heinrich Gratz, who uh, lived in the uh, 19th century. And I'll say it again, it's probably the most famous and, in many respects, the most uh, influential, consequential of the Jewish historians, even though there's a lot to like and not, lot, not a lot not to like, but that's got nothing to do with it. So let me uh, lay out the context. Last time we spoke about Azari de Rossi, who was in the 1500s and 16th century in Italy. Uh, after him, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, there was no real historian. Uh, history was not an, an important discipline. In the yeshiva world, so to speak, history it, it doesn't count. And that was true in culture in general. Uh, philosophy was very important. As the 15, 16, 1700s go on, science starts to become important, correct? I mean, you got Isaac Newton-type guys. Uh, I mean, science actually becomes, starts to become science, medicine, and in many other areas, not history. In the 18th century, in the 1700s already, history uh, is somewhat popular, but it's more brilliant than sound. Uh, history is great uh, literature. Uh, let's go back. Yeah, history is great literature. Everybody knows Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. That's a classic. And Voltaire's famous uh, history, The Age of Louis XIV. It's more about giving your opinion of of, of, uh, facts than than about the facts, even though Gibbon is a brilliant work. But nevertheless, it's not so, you know, they play plays around with the sources. It didn't matter. It's what an educated, intelligent person could read, although it's fat, an educated, intelligent person could read um, for for fun, for leisure, for uh, acquiring a lot of information, and just for a good story. Now... um, I mean, if you're into Gibbon or Voltaire or people like that, who needs fiction? And I don't mean that that they're telling lies. I'm saying, no, that the story is written in such a gewaltic way. It's better than 99% of all the movies. And then comes the 19th century, the 1800s, in which we get the real unshackling of science. Uh, Remember, in the year one, it was a horse and wagon, and in the year 1800, it was a horse and wagon. In 1800 B.C., it was a horse and wagon, but in 1900, it's it's a car, it's, 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 it's a railroad. It's almost an airplane. So 19th century is the unshackling of science. That's when science begins to explode, as we all know. And so we have those amazing hard sciences involving the dethroning of religion in the area of science. After the 1800s, for someone to suggest that this and this happened because you know God willed it, instead of discovering the electromagnetic principles or what makes a, a, a train or eventually uh, an airplane, It's silly. So these kind of guys who already started earlier, Newton and Copernicus and others like that, uh, they made it that religion is driven from the area of the hard sciences. Agreed? Now, uh, this even reaches an apogee in the 1800s with uh, the next guy over here, Comte, who holds a whole, whole logic of positivism in which, I mean, only the French could do this. Science comprehends the totality of reality. Maybe science hasn't got there yet, because it doesn't get everywhere. It, it cannot, in other words, knowledge is infinite. So there's always a progressive uh, kind of uh, you know, journey. However, uh, nothing exists outside of the scientific. Nothing exists. The magical world, the mystical world, all those sorts of things are just that, they're, they're imagination. They're not real, uh, which is quite a statement. Later on, science withdrew from that. But I'm talking about it at that time. Now, the triumph of the hot you all understand what I'm saying. So to live in an age in which new discoveries are coming out at, at ever-increasing tempo and that the, the, the fruits of the science are transforming your life and you know, you're living in a way that you know people couldn't imagine would be even in the messianic era couldn't help but powerfully affect um, thinking and civilization and eventually the triumph of the hard sciences leads to the notion of the social sciences which can take, take scientific methodology like in math or chemistry or medicine, things like this, and apply them to literature, history, philosophy, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, hard scientists will say this. Mathematics is real. History is just, uh, or philosophy is just speculation. No. We can develop a methodology and and bestow upon the fruits of our research the name of science and make the claims of authority of science in these areas that we so self-evidently are able to make in the areas of technology. You understand? I say you know, that there's something called the steam engine. Here it is. Watch. It works. Enter discussion. I can make the same story statement now about King Arthur or Henry VIII or something like that. You know, we have the real facts over here. Now, um, the beginning in the discipline of history, in other words, I'm trying to talk about a time when what you, we today call the modern discipline of history, like the guys with the PhDs. This begins in the early 1800s, and not before that, uh, with uh, the founding of the University of Berlin. Again, the founding of the University of Berlin by this famous guy, Humboldt, Wilhelm von Humboldt, in which this was the first modern university in which uh, publish a publisher perish. You've got to do uh, research, and that's the most important thing that counts. And if you can't put out empirically verifiable research that's peer-reviewed and, you know, and, and your, your, your findings are transparent and can be replicated, all the sorts of things that we're, we're, we're familiar with today, uh, then get out of here. So the fact that somebody just memorized a lot of books and knows all the Latin classics, it doesn't count anymore, right? It's what, what can be mechadish in a way that, as I said before, is empirically uh, verifiable and peer-reviewed and can be uh, you know, uh, challenged. And the result is the new history, meaning the new way of looking at the past, which is, through the attempts to put together a methodological rigor and make it, uh, as I say before, into something real. Now, uh, it so happens that this new history happened at the very beginning of the 1800s, which, in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, led to what we call the new nationalism, in which the nation-state, in Europe now, in Europe, the nation-state uh, came to be um, viewed in a mystical way. It's not funny we're dealing with the, the time of, of science, but in the area of politics, there's no such thing as science. Politics is always mystical. Would you agree with that statement? You know? <laughs> well, it, but it's kind of true. You know, the whole point of politicians bamboozle you. You, know, you can't do it through em- empirically verifiable stories. You have to get carried away. You understand? I'm, I'm so in love with Rockefeller, I'll send him money for his campaign, even though he doesn't need my money. You know, the, uh, the, the, That's the idea of the modern politics. And what arose in Europe for a variety of reasons was the new nationalism in which basically what you're saying, this is not an un-Jewish idea, by the way, is that the nation is more than the sum of its citizens. Correct? The nation is more than the sum of its citizens. It has a mystical essence. Start in Germany and France. There's a thing called German-ness. You know, there's a German folk. You get it? And it's just something, it's there, and if you don't understand what it is, you're not part of it. Or there's an essence of Frenchness. French-ness or eventually English, or any, any nationality that you wish to do. And what is it? It's just there. And it's just always been there. And you're supposed to bring carbonus. You're supposed to work on behalf of this higher essence. And so I know that France is full of jerks and all that. But France, <laughs> is not, with a capital F, is not full of jerks. You understand? The ideal situation. America has a lot of problems. Oh my god, we have a lot of problems. But America, the revolution, Abraham Lincoln, America is worth all that. Now um, in this situation, the new nationalism, for what it's worth, develops an incestuous relationship <laughs> with the new history. Uh, history is basically in the service of the deification of the state. And so the result is that there are all these famous broad and sweeping histories, grant 71, one, all sweeping histories of, of nations. And they're gavaldic and they're, they're they're like movies. And I don't say they're 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 false. They're in a particular way of massaging the effects. And uh, this becomes very uh, characteristic of the 1800s and the good old period of history, whether you realize or not you and I grew up with this uh, brainwashing, uh, because that became part of the textbooks, you understand? And even if the textbooks are modified. Per- perhaps today they're modified more. But if, if most of you was old Zion, roughly speaking, we still grew up in the, <laughs> in the unmodified textbooks and there's a certain way of looking at, at reality. Uh, The most famous the early historians in Germany was Leopold Ranke, who said now, who did very interesting things. I spoke about him before. Very, very interesting person. He went to Venice and did research in the Venetian KGB files. You know, know, the Borgias, Julius II. It doesn't get better than that. The the Venetian spies right back to Venice. And then, even though history tells you this is what happened, but now we know this is really what happened. Okay. So imagine it's, it's like having the Watergate tapes, right? Uh, how about if Obama leaves Watergate tapes and he finds it was really going? Oh boy, you know. And then you find out via Egin wisse. he said. Now, as a result of our modern methods of research, we can find out how things actually were. Now, this is crazy, but I'm talking about the 1800s, and historians do not feel this way today. But at, but at that time, you can understand the heady atmosphere of developing a methodology in which you go and find literally the first sources. You actually find the birth certificate of Henry VIII, if it will, or William the Conqueror, or, or whatever. And uh, you find the actual documents. And you compare against other documents. And then you, you become a little bit like a uh, CIA analyst. you know, In um, Second World War, right after Pearl Harbor, there was a dearth of CIA analysts. They called the OSS at that time. And so they went to all the Harvard, Princeton, Yale and those kind of plays, Hopkins, and got all the classic scholars. You get it? Because they had experience in putting together pieces of evidence. It's, it's not a dumb idea, right? It's a certain skill that you connected together. And they were the OSS, or the first wave, in the Second World War, as far as the analysis is concerned. So this whole idea of saying, till now, we only thought of Henry VIII like this. But now we got the documents and you know what he really said to his wife or what he didn't say to his wife, and now we see what things were really like. So it was, all I can tell you is it was clearly an intoxicating atmosphere in the academic world. And the result is that in the 1800s, especially the first half of the 1800s, there's a whole crop of very famous uh, histories that are published, single volume, multi-volume, by, by different national historians about the sagas of famous states. Uh, here's some of them. Uh, these are names famous once, no, let's go back, famous years, what's here, A uh, Macaulay's history of the English-speaking peoples, which he gives you the dramatic story of the Glorious Revolution, how England went from being ruled by tyrannical kings and the Catholic Church to William and Mary and then Parliament, and here we are today, and England is the most advanced country, which it was, which it was okay, so it's a progressive story. You might see Carlyle's history of the French Revolution, where he tells you, how when democracy gets out of hand, it results in a dictatorship and all that kind of stuff. But um, this really, these books are movies. They have, people have made movies out of them. They're told in a very bold and dramatic way. These guys were good storytellers. I'm not saying they lied, but they assembled the information and interpreted it a certain way. Uh, Michelet did the exact same thing for France even today. There are statues of Michelet all over the place. You know, La France, the, the, you know, the, 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 the mystical uh, France in Germany, George Bancroft, he's in America. George Bancroft, who, by the way, founded the Annapolis Naval College, who was the Secretary of the Navy under Polk, among other things, but he was a big historian, and he wrote the history of the United States, in which you have the Revolution, George Washington, all that sort of things, in bold and heroic fashion. That was a famous patriotic book of once upon a time, Mm -hmm. And it was a classic of the old school and not anymore. And you could read it today, and I'll tell you right now, if you read it today, it's a little bit old English, it would be very interesting, you know what I mean? In other words, it's, if you go on vacation, you take Bancroft, and uh, it is, <laughs> you, you could do a lot worse. Saying John Lothar Motley, who was from a, a New England family, he lived a, a abroad a lot, and so he got interested in the Dutch for some reason. And uh, I don't think you could read Dutch, but uh, he wrote The Rise of the Dutch Republic. Oh my goodness, the Dutch revolted. Protestants against Philip II, that evil man, and Philip II sent the soldiers to kill everybody, and the Dutch rose and fought for their freedom, and they flooded the, uh, the, the dikes and everything like that. And it's an 80-year war. For, this is true by the way, it's an 80-year war for national liberation., okay? Think about that. America had a 70-year revolution where Dutch had, and, they, and they couldn't lose. If the Spanish would take them, they'd kill everybody. So it's quite a story. So by the time you finish it, your blood is rolling. And like I say, who wastes time with fiction? You know what I mean? This is this is things like, it's great. They're better than movies. They're, they're heroes. And they're villains. And there's nothing to talk about. you get it? The Duke of Alba is the black villain. Philip II of Spain, who wants to burn everybody to the stake, is the villain. And Queen Elizabeth, and all these are the heroes. And they get this. Okay, what about the Jews? <laughs> right? Let's bring them back to us. Well, as I've said many times in the past, the, the Jewish culture up to this time usually was based on what I call the four pillars of traditionalism—you know, the fundamentalism, and the anomianism uh, and the autonomous cores of communities, and the cultural insularity. But uh, this starts to shred in the 1800s, for one reason or another. Now uh, it's sort of like a rocket ship going to the moon—you you jettison certain parts. Now uh, uh, let's put it this way. Part two and part, part three and part four: the autonomous coercive community, the cultural insularity, did not do survive very well in the 19th century. There was a huge impact on um, on the Kielan and cultural insularity. Uh, emancipation meant that um, the Jews in different countries are given civil rights. If they give them civil rights, they're the same citizen like somebody else. So just like the Catholic Church can over, no longer have any political power over Catholics, so no Jewish church can have any political power over Jews. And that's the trade-off when you get civil rights. And all the Jews, 99%, wanted civil rights. Who wouldn't? And so the result is, you say like this, I'm in America. If I want to join Shomrei, i join Shomrei. If tomorrow I want to change my mind and join something, I'll do whatever I want. I don't want anybody forcing me by law to do that. And same thing with Catholics and Protestants and all the others. So as a result of sweeping trends, like the emancipation, and remember, every country in Europe by 1870 gave the Jews civil rights except for Russia so that's a lot of Jews, uh, then forget autonomous, coercive communities. It just doesn't exist anymore, even though it was one of the four things holding up the Jewish polity for so many years, in the absence of a state, in the absence of a church, as I've said many times. And they have cultural insularity. And when you get things like urbanization in public schools, when under the impact of the Industrial Revolution, which happens in the 1800s, uh, millions of people, tens of millions, actually, all over Europe moved from the countryside to cities, because now you can have capitalism, and the government doesn't interfere, and you can set up factories at will and import vast numbers of people in the countryside to get jobs in the factories, even though it's a sweatshop situation. Uh, the Jews are part of that. And that means the Jews, in millions, millions, leave the small towns and villages where they live, just like the Gentiles did. And as I said 100 times, you know, when you live in a small town, a small village, that itself is the most powerful reinforcer of traditionalistic values. You get it. You know, there's only so many times you can be sick for showers <laughs> when you're one of ten people, twelve people. Like where you bid, okay? There's only so many times your wife can skip the mikvah and not go to the kosher butcher. That's a, there's no privacy in small towns. But when you move to New York, you move to Berlin, you move to London, and such places like that, where'd you dub In another shul, in another neighborhood, you know? What butcher? Oh, I went to the other butcher. You, you see? And then that, so that plus the new urban centers, which were set up by the governments. Through, you know, who were hand-in-hand with the capitalists who uh, develop the economy, so uh, they need a, a workforce that's at least basically literate, and so the result is there's public schooling everywhere, free and compulsory, and the Jews when they go in their masses, in the millions, to uh, these urban centers without going, I talked about this many years ago, but they all go to public school, okay? And what they go to afternoon Jewish schools, we know, is, uh, is junk, and the result is forget about cultural insularity. So just vast... Sweeping trends in the 19th century get rid of two of the four that used to um, uphold the uh, Jewish uh, culture. What about the other two, fundamentalism and nominism? Oh, and now it gets tricky. By nominism, I mean fundamentalism, I mean the basic beliefs that God gave the Torah and Torah Shibikshav, Torah Shabay, and all that sort of thing. And by uh, nominism, I mean the commitment to law, to, to preserve halacha. Jewish practice and custom as the essence of Judaism, as opposed to a philosophy, for example, Reform Judaism, which rejects nomianism in principle and says that the totality of Judaism is comprised by belief. OK, the totality of Judaism is comprised by belief. They don't even necessarily believe in law, but nevertheless, whatever, whatever it is, that's what Judaism is. It's not a matter of, of, of law. They reject it in principle. So uh, what about the other two? Here I'm focusing tonight on the uh, potential impact of historicism on fundamentalism and nominism. because once they t- start to discover and have this new attitude towards the past, in which uh, nothing happened unless you can prove it. You want to tell me there's Abraham Lincoln? Alechol habiraya. You know, prove it, and I can. So okay, we're not talking about people who are arguing in a babyish way. If you can prove it, okay, that's that's fine. You say that George Washington was the Battle of Brandywine? I don't believe it. Here's the proof. Okay, I believe it. You tell me that Christopher Columbus left on such and such a date. I don't believe it. Now you tell me. To, I believe it. Okay, so tell me about the Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Here we are two weeks before Egypt, <laughs> before before Pesach. He said I can't prove it. Then it didn't happen. Don't expect me to believe it. If you ask me, show me that there was proof of Avram Mitsu Moshe and Dar Shlomo, or Baez Rishon, or anything like that. He said I can't prove it. that's so fine. You want to believe it? You believe it, you know. But don't tell me that it happened. So, this attitude of historicism, which people subject the past, this kind of rigorous academic type approach, regardless of its merits at the moment, I'm not going into that, nevertheless had a huge impact, obviously, in the intellectual sense. And uh, what kind of incidence is going to have a fundamentalism? Well, oh, forget that. You know, everything I learned in school was a bunch of mythology. And what about gnomianism? Well, obviously, if God didn't give the Torah, if that's a made-up story, then I don't have to give Shabbos. You know, that's what's happened in, in there. We talked about this in the past. Okay, now we're dealing with. So, so what's the reaction of Jews? Uh, obviously, at the mass level, I'm not talking about it, because mass level is just people trying to make a living. They don't even have time to think about the terms that I just laid out for you. Uh, their knowledge in the 1800s comes from a Riga newspaper, maybe. That's all. Um, but on the other hand, there were intellectuals, and there, there's a whole group of young Jewish intellectuals in, in Central Europe, Germany, and, and, and nearby uh, uh, Poland, um, after 1815. Who uh, are very famously and powerfully impacted by the new historicism and everything that I've been describing? Um, here are some famous names: Tzunz, Rappaport, and, and Heine. Heinrich Heine, I'm sure many of you know, was an extremely gifted Jewish poet who um, uh, converted to Christianity because he couldn't get a job. And man, I put him on the board simply because there are many of them. And he said very explicitly, he said, I did this for a careerist purpose. I don't believe in Judaism. I don't believe in Christianity. He might have really still believed in Judaism, to be perfectly honest. Because even after he converted, he wrote, you're going to laugh at what I'm going to say, but it's true. He has poems to chaunt. And I, I see it, you know. If you, if you, it's actually quite good. The ambrosia of the gods and all this sort of thing. I mean, he was really into it. But Shalet, uh, as he calls it over there. And, uh, and and he, and he has a poem about the Tosis Yontef, believe it or not. And you know he has he has uh, Jewish themes. Uh, Rabbi uh, Tabak, who used to be here in Baltimore, uh, some will remember the Sharon Zion. So he did his uh, uh, his dissertation at Hopkins in 1942 on Jewish themes in Heinrich which weren't that hard to find. So um, anyhow, the point is that one reaction is to to say, well, since Judaism uh, you know isn't, isn't true anymore, why should I suffer uh, the loss of civil rights on this behalf, and I'll just convert. So, just, and 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 these two guys, Heine and Tuns, had been the uh, heads of the Hillel in University of Berlin. they were the head of the Jewish club, wasn't the Hillel? But they had a Jewish club. So they actually, when they went to university, tried to have a positive Jewish sort of thing. But the impact was so powerful, and a number of other people from the club, the the, the president, the vice president, the secretary, they all converted. The only guy didn't convert was this guy, Tuns, Leopold Tuns. He said, "I'm not converting." but I am going to reimagine Judaism in, in accordance and conformity with the new historicism, and, uh, and that's what he did. Uh, these guys, though, the type of person I'm talking about, has a Jewish education from, uh, you see, elementary school. Um, he had some kind of, I emphasize, some kind of Jewish education at the high school level, nothing particular great, but some kind of Jewish education. But now they're in university. Um, they've had to go to a gymnasium, a uh, gymnasium, Uh, European style, which means up to the 15th grade, or what a lot of them did is tests, and uh, they called that extern at that time, and they go straight to the grad school, and here you are having high-level lectures in uh, philosophy and other things like that. They cannot just accept the total fundamentalist package. They don't believe it anymore. They don't wish to. They're not Hasidic. They're not Haredi. They're not into fideism, like Catholics who say we espouse a philosophy, a belief, in and of itself, (laughs) The Fideists will say, belief is a better way of apprehending reality than reason. It's just the 1800s. They're not like that. Uh, they're into the heady new empiricism. But they also want to retain their Judaism. Now, Heine and those guys are willing to jettison it. And Suntz and these guys represent the ones who say, I don't want to give up being Jewish. Okay? Even though it doesn't make any, any sense. right? Because they don't believe in it. But I'm speaking as an Orthodox Jew, so I say either or. But they, they don't see it that way. Um, as we know, as the French say, the heart has its reasons which reason cannot comprehend. Right? You know, why do you want to say Jewish? A Chassid will say, oh, You know, that's how they will, uh, that's fine. But that's a mystical notion, you see? Now, in that era, if one wants to assert that the Jews are a nation and not just a religious sect, if one wants to argue that really the Jews, despite what my German professors tell me, are no less chashav than the Germans and the French, one cannot do so by making a fundamentalist theological argument. It won't fly. To be respectable in the modern world, it would have to be an argument from history. Right? Such an argument, after all, is secular, empirically verifiable, sort of. Uh, history isn't exactly empirically verifiable, but discovered the Jewish past, And nobody had thought in these terms. Nobody had said... Let's look at the Jewish past and find out what part of it is legend and what part of it is fact. Did the morale make a golem, for example? You see what I'm saying? You know, things like this. I heard it. Somebody said, well, you said it. It must have happened. Uh, did this and this rabbi you know, fly to heaven for five minutes to talk to somebody? That's what I heard it said. You know, you get it? Like, you know, how do we separate fiction from fact? Aren't we interested in that? And obviously, the are mark going to have any respect for us if our whole attitude towards who we are is a mishmash of fiction, effect. fact. So I may not be able to persuade them that Jews are worthy of respect by saying the Torah says so, but aside from that, the Jews have a long 3,000-year-old history, or at least we argue, and historically speaking, we can at least go 2,000, 2,500 years, you know, from the time the Greeks and the Romans talk about us, and we can show that we're not just the Eskimos over here, you know, we're, we're, we're not the Hottentots. We are uh, somebody important. That's how, that's how they would say it. Now, um, the result was a preoccupation with discovering the genuine as opposed to the legendary or from Jewish past. First time this was ever undertaken. Right? they're dabbled in it as we talked about last time, but this guy, these guys, especially people like Tzuntz and others, took it very seriously. Now, they were not great to tell me Chacham at all, but they, on the other hand, they did to learn, they understood whether the Korea is safer and they're going to undertake to start to put together the library. Like, what the heck is out there? Yeah, And nobody's even... Bothered to inventory and catalog the books. And uh, that's what they do. Now, the problem is this is antiquarianism, which can excite no interest among the public. Um, here, Sons, Einsteiner, these are famous names of the past, not to you all, because the books they wrote are on very highly detailed sort of things. You know, what is the history of sermons in the synagogue? You know, where did they do it? In a, what is the history of Jewish names? You know, it's a very thick in dense book. Give me a list of all the Slichas. Right, and who wrote what, and when did they live, and all that kind of stuff. You know, there are certain types of people that like that sort of thing, and God bless them. And I mean that. No, we can't do history without that. But they're, they're, they're concentrating on the building blocks. And that's not what Ronk and these other guys, I mean, they're doing that too, but that's not a movie already. You understand? Steinschneider is very famous for writing thousands and thousands of these uh, bibliographical footnotes. Oh my goodness. And he even said, or is reported anyway to have said, uh, my main goal over here is to make sure that Judaism gets a decent burial. You get it? Now, that may have been an exaggeration, but that's associated with his name. There's a big difference between antiquarianism, as we call it today, and history. Um, one cannot become, let's put it this way, a guy like Tzuntz and these others didn't have what it takes to be historians because you need broad vision a very powerful imagination, and the antiquarians don't have it. The, the 19th century is full of these guys. They all did very good articles, get what I'm saying? On little nakudas on, on certain subjects. But that's not what we're talking about. So Shadal, maybe you've heard him in, in uh, Padua, uh, very famous, Shmuel W. Luzzato who wrote hundreds of articles in Evrit and on every subject in the book. But they are always little pieces, you, you understand, or the meaning of words in the according to the biblical, uh, what's the right word, uh, exegesis, and things of this nature. Uh, if any of you ever go to Padua, the, 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 the uh, house the, uh, where he, he was the head of the first rabbinical seminary. Uh, not a shiva, a seminary found by the Austrian Empire in Padua, and it was Orthodox, sort of, but Orthodoxy doesn't know of this new monster called the seminary. mean, <laughs> So they were feeling their way. Uh Huda Rappaport is a perfect sim- and the Maritz Chayes. These are two guys who, if they wanted to, uh, you can tell by the way they look, if they wanted to, could have had a career simply as famous rabbis. And the Maritz Chayes actually does. He has two careers, A and B. One is a rabbi in the back of the Gemara. He has Shalos and Chuvas. Uh, he was a big egg in his day, a little controversial. But, you know, you can tell by the way he looks that, um, you know, he's a rabbi of the classic old school sort of. That's one of the hats he wears. But another hat he, I don't mean literally, that's the hat he wore. But another hat he wears as a historian. Now he brings his preconcept, but everybody does that. And so as a historian, he has a whole thing, a on a via, and, you know, again, all kind of subject. What did the Rambam really mean over here and, uh, you know, who who uh, really wrote this thing in the Middle Ages, and it's a combination of, of rabbinics on the one hand and the other. This guy was very controversial. Shlomo Huda Rabavort, he's the son of the Kitsos, Hachoshen. If, if that means anything to people from the yeshiva background, like, you don't get more lumbish than that, right? And as a matter of fact, he is the one who published the Avnei Meluim again, which means, that's the Kitsos' book on Ebenezer, these are super yeshivish, so this guy could wipe the floor with anybody in learning today, as they say, anybody, anywhere, OK? But that's not what interests him. Right? When he, caught, he caught the history bug. And uh, he was a big Moscow, therefore. And uh, the Frum didn't like him. And he had a whole interesting career over there. We talk about some other that. And, uh, uh And, and he, he was informing against the Hasidim to the Austrian police. I mean, it's a whole very picaresque story. Um, and what he's really famous for is his biographies of famous rabbis from the Middle Ages, and that sort of thing. This is what and he, did, he was going to publish in encyclopedia, He did one or two volumes, Erich Milan, in his life, again of little minutiae and realia, because that's the world in which he lives. And he's a very smart person, obviously. You know, it's a person with a powerful brain, but he didn't have the historian thing in the way I'm talking about. The first significant historian who thought in broad terms of the whole Jewish people over thousands of years was uh, the founder of Reform Judaism. Right, Abram Geiger, who who conceives Jewish history in a grand way, but in the service of a super farkrumta hashkafa, as they would say today, because this guy wasn't just a reformer, but he was like, Ooh, right. So by the time he's finished, the Pharisees are the are the reform, and the Sadducees are the Orthodox. You understand? He's got it all worked out, and it's 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 very entertaining and thought provoking. To read Geiger's conception of Jewish history in the ancient times, in the Middle Ages, and in the modern times, he's got it all worked out. And he's a great writer, and a very powerful sort of pen. It just is weird. It's like reading Picasso, you know. And uh, and and but but it stirred um, reactions. Okay, the result. Um, so in other words, this is this is I, mean, I would I would call him a grotesque genius. Or, you know, that, that's how many would view him today. Others follow him. The most important uh, and significant for better or worse, in the 19th century was Gretz. It was Heinrich Gretz, without question, who, as you can see, lived from right through the 1800s, 1817, 1891. And it was, it was a different guy altogether than Geiger. Gretz was born in, in Prussian Poland, right? This is, this is the armpit of Prussia literally, uh, because the Prussian state stuck out like that. If the border, you look, at, you look at the old Prussia over there, There's one stick over here, then it's like a thing sticking here, In the middle is what they call the province of Posen. So maybe there's some people here from the Posen area, which is really Polish Jews, the area that Prussia occupied uh, for a long time. And so he's like half, he, he grows up at a time in which, uh, let's put it this way, there's a Kulturkampf. The Prussians are trying to impose uh, the German culture on the population the Poles are still trying to retain the Polish one. If you're a Jew, you're stry- still trying to keep Yiddish and the Cheder, but the Prussian state wants you to do get rid of Yiddish and go for German and for public school. It's quite an interesting era. And as you can see, it's a little nothing town. You know, uh, I forget what they call it in his time, Sionz or something like that. His father was a butcher. And his mother was the daughter of a, a Dayan. So that's the social class out of which he emerged. And the la- it's the last years of the old school, like I say. Prussia is pushing for public uh, 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 schooling and the Jews are in the process of adjusting. And the result was that he got a, an education in the cheder, but also in a school. So functionally speaking, it's sort of something along the lines of a day school, except didn't have the ethos of a day school. At <laughs> the age of 14, what do you do then? That's when you had to make life decisions. So he can go to one of two places. Should he go to Posen the big city? There's the famous yeshiva, Rabbi Akiva Eger at that time. No, he goes to a small town. Of which there still were many in that area. Wolstein, Wolstein, to Rabbi Shmuel Monk, you've never heard him, um, who, who was a Rav and a Rosh Shiva in a small town. This is the eastern Poland, eastern Germany still had a lot of these types. He was a moderate type of person. Uh, it's an old school yeshiva life that breast goes through for a number of years. Pasma timsa Tischte, you know, you, 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 you eat bread and salt, you know, you sleep on the floor. In, in, in Prussia, in the, in, the, in the winter time, you know, in, in the old school, and that's what you do. So he was a poor guy, like many others, who went through this school of hard knocks, as it were, and was, you know, sitting all day long and learning, except that you also have time off to go read other things if you want to. Uh, secular knowledge at the high school level he did not get, so he's an autodidact, like all these masculine were. You know, plot, whatever comes to hand. If you find, he, Little by little, he taught himself German. And eventually, little by, that's what you got to do if you want to do it. You have to teach yourself. Little by little, he moved from German to Latin. You know what I'm saying? And little by little, he got hold of a math book. And little by little, he got a hold of a history book. That is how life was once upon a time. Now, uh, by 18, the results of this are that he has a religious crisis. Because what he's reading in the books, outside of Seder, contradict what he's reading, what he's learning in the, in the, in the, in the yeshiva. And it's not like there was some kind of an integrated school curriculum or culture in which they could somehow make this work. Do you understand? This is exactly why Y.U. was founded, for example, correct? To work, help people work through that kind of thing. He didn't have that. And so he goes through a profound crisis, which he contemplated suicide, because he was very, coming from his background, he was very con- committed to the Jewish stuff, and yet it seems to be not true. And all the Judaism and the from Judaism things around him seems to be so stupid and so narrow-minded, which it was, and so you know, uh, insular. It's, it's a real turnoff to him. When he's 18 years old, he gets a hold of a book in German, which electrifies him. The author was a young rabbi who lived not too far away, whose name was Samson of Right? Now I couldn't find the, the picture I really wanted. They kept that off the internet with the Hirsch in the very, very young years without the yarmulke. But nevertheless, uh, the, uh, he was, uh, 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 let's put it this way, from day one, he was a very unusual person. Because Hirsch was born in 1808 in Hamburg to a middle-class family. His biography does not read like the rabbinical biography of anybody else in the 1800s. All these other guys are coming from a yeshiva background. Their father was a rabbi or a shiva or a dain or something like that. Hersh's parents were business people. Um, and he grew up in Hamburg, an Orthodox family, but, uh, you know, he went, uh, when, when he was growing up, he went to a brand new school called TA. It was just founded at that time, the equivalent thereof. Um, it was called the Talmud Torah. Uh, school and uh, they try to make that—that's the first uh, day school as we would call it now. Rabbi Bernays was was it, they brought him in, in there uh, because the community saw uh, what Gretz had felt, which was that old school orthodoxy, you know, uh, you know, uh, what shall I say, uh, old school Kharedi orthodoxy, total turnoff to the younger generation, total turnoff, and it'll you know it'll die, and so they made a search find somebody with a college education. And one of the very few people they could find was uh, Isaac Bernays, who was in the College. of his college. He, he, he was in university. He, get, he never got his doctorate. But they actually, I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. The, this is how unsure the, the Jewish communities were of themselves by the time you get to the time I'm talking about 1818, 1819 because reform is rising, and the children are being defected, and everything seems like a turnoff, and, and the old-school rabbis with the fur caps and all the rest of it seem like so unworldly that uh, the uh, Kehillah wrote to all the theological faculties of the German universities, wrote to the Goyim, can you recommend a rabbi for us? Can you believe this? That is an Orthodox congregation. But when a, a rabbi with an education, with 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 morality and ethics, I mean, there's certainly a certain of involved here, but, but, but you do understand how it happened, and it was through this that one professor wrote to another professor, and so forth say, so, do, you know do you have any grad students who are orthodox, Jeez, but they're enlightened and all the rest, and that's how this guy got the job. He was at the University of Bonn. He, was, he knew how to learn, but he came with a complete dim persona, and one of the first things he he was very anti-reform, and one of the first things he did was started a, a day school. It's one of the very first day schools, and Hirsch was one of the very first students, and so he, when the day school is up to the 10th grade, this is Germany, not America, it's not up to the 12th grade. So, and he was the Rebbe of the uh, 10th grade. So the long and the short of Hirsch is, he went to a day school, but he clicked with the 12th grade Rebbe, as we would say today, or the ten, in this case, the 10th grade Rebbe. And those uh, who have children or whatever, whoever had the lucky to actually click with somebody, as opposed to just screw through the system of 10, 12 years, and you don't click with anybody, it's all the difference in the world. And so after the 10th grade, Hirsch, very unusually, went to a gymnasium because usually after that you went to business. But he wasn't built that way. And he said he wanted not have a career um, with, with a classical education to employing the rabbinate At a young age, he already thought this way. And he went to a Christian gymnasium in, in Hamburg in the city where he lived, in which case he had, like we would say today, four years of, uh, of St. John's College. You know, In other words, a tough liberal arts uh, curriculum in which you have to publish like two papers a week or three papers a week Think about that. If you can't do it, you know the old law school thing: the guy to the right of you, the one to the left of you, fails. You get it? So sink or swim. That's why he was a good writer. You get it? He he had an excellent education in um, what we say, to use American terms, in English comp and that sort of thing. So anyway, uh, but this is not a gutov. You (laughs) know, person. It's it's very funny the way I'm describing this sort of thing. It's an unusual kind of um, of uh, profile. And uh, after he finishes his B.A. or graduates the gymnasium, Sam Schreffel-Hirsch, uh, so he takes a, now they go for a year to Israel. He goes for a year, to, one year to study yeshiva. that time, there was a young rabbi in South Germany, in Mannheim, who had yeshiva, 20 guys maybe. That's what they were at that time. Yaakov uh, Entliger, who later on became very famous. And uh, so Hirsch is goes, here Here he have with the 10, 20 boys, and he puts in his year or so over there, and then... Uh, like in America, you know, this, I'm describing almost like the Ramaz career. You know, so you go for a year to Israel, but then you got to go to a good university. And Hurst goes to the University of Bonn, which was a new university and therefore less prejudiced. A uh, number of, of universities popped up after the uh, after 1815, and Jews were more naturally go over there because they would be less hidebound by the old, uh, you know, um, prejudice. They had theirs, but less so. Here. Uh, Hirsch very famously uh, was for a year or so, maybe a year and a half, in uh, grad school. Uh, it's, what's really famous is he, he, he was a roommate with another Jew, because, you know, that's what you do. You know what I mean? You find somebody like you, and a uh, Geiger. <laughs> right? So the historians love this sort of thing. Here's two guys in a college roommate. One ended up, one ended up like that. And, uh, and by the way, they learned together. They, they sermoned on each other. Get it? Notice I'll critique you and you critique me. So each one had an idea that they're going to go into a rabbinical career, and that obviously means that they're conceiving a rabbinical career in very different terms than what it had been beforehand. These are not going to be two guys, even the front one, with a tall fur cap, looking like the note of Yehuda and, and speaking in Yiddish and, and giving a Pilposhir on Shabbos HaGoron. It's going to be something totally different. You see? Uh, the only difference is, as we know, uh, each one wanted to reform Judaism, but they have a different definition of the term to reform, to reform Judaism. In the middle of grad school, there's a sign put up on the, uh, what do you call it, on the, on the door of the college, you know, the, what am I, doing? Well, the bulletin board, yeah. And the bulletin board said like this, there's a German Medina that's looking for a chief rabbi. Germany at that time didn't exist as a unified country. After the consolidation of the Congress of Vienna, instead of some, it's from 300 and some states, it went to like 35 states, okay. But there's still totally independent, separate countries. There's the Kingdom of Bavaria, which is its own country. The Kingdom of Saxony, which is its own country, the Kingdom of Württemberg, which is its own country, and Hanover, and Prussia, of course, and uh, the, you know, and many little states like that. One of them is the Grand Duchy of Oldenburg. I know it's a popular one over here, but and 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 which, by the way, is Hirsch is uh, from Hamburg, right there. So this really was not far from his home, although he was in university down here in Bonn. So uh, basically. Uh, the Grand Duke is looking for anybody can speak German, has some kind of a secular education, is a modern-type individual, not a revolutionary, and uh, you know, won't cause any trouble, and will guide the uh, Jewish community, which is tiny, in the, in the right path as far as the government is concerned. And uh, Hirsch signed up for it. They got the job. They did a background check. We even today have the police report. It's really cute. Yeah, well, you don't want to get a communist or something like that. So they, the, the police report checked up on his family, as very famous, they said, they're enlightened religios. They're religious, but they're enlightened. You understand? So anyhow, uh, see, quit college, because the only reason he was going was not really to finish the doctorate, but to get a job with it. And here, I know it sounds funny, but to be the chief rabbi of a country in Europe meant that he went a huge leap to the top of the ladder, so to speak, even though we all know it is a country of about 700 Jews, but nevertheless... I don't know how, how I convey conveyed this to an American audience, but in Germany, uh, an Oberrabiner is something. It's like a professor is something. You understand? In America, you say you're a professor. so how much do you make? You know, In Germany, he says a professor is already... Even, even the wife of a professor, they make room for in line. A frau professor, you understand? A doctor is, a, is an epist. So in that kind of world, he's not just a rabbi. He's a chief rabbi of a country. So right off the bat, you know it's, it, 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 it's something very big. And so he ends up in, a, in, in a, the chief rabbi of Medina, Hirsch, with a lot of time in his hands. <laughs> because there's only very few Jews over there, and they're not particularly religious, and they're not interested in his stuff at all. And he constantly writes reports to the government and all the rest of it. And so the result is that a number of years go by, and he has a lot of time on his hands. And so he thinks, and he learns. This is probably where he did most of his learning, I mean, because he ended up knowing a lot. So, you know, to go through shahs and post and all the rest of it. He, now, you've got to be very self-motivated, correct? There's nobody to talk to. It is as boring as being the chief rabbi of Montana. My goodness, you know? <laughs> there is, before the Internet. So, you know, there, it is boring. So either you're, either you're built that, like the Rambam, you know, you get up at 5 and you have a schedule and you stick to it, and that's who you are, and he was like that. And so it's like this. We're doing Baba Kama from 9 to 10, we're doing from 10 to 11, we're doing the Shulchan Aruch this and this and this. We're also doing... Uh, you know uh, the, the Gibbons' decline of all the Roman Empire, you know, and and Goethe and so forth for ten to twelve, and then in the afternoon is the Shulchan Aruch. that, that, that is who he was. Okay, but he also thinks a lot about the collapsing Judaism because he himself, this was his advantage, was uh, flesh of their flesh and, and bone of their bone. He, he was a young guy. He had a lot of relatives and friends he grew up with, and he knew that most of them um, gave up being religious. Most of them looked at uh, Judaism, fundamentalist Judaism, as something crazy and completely irrelevant. And, uh, and, and he sympathized with them. Meaning, I understand why you just have some Yiddish-speaking uh, type guy as a turnoff. It is a turnoff. But the problem, my friends, is, he would say, that we're conflating that with Judaism. And that's simply one particular manifestation of Judaism. It's not Judaism. So basically, if we could dust off the diamond, you'd see how it shines. And uh, the result is, that he put his uh, ideas into a uh, p- uh, paper when he was uh, 29 or 30 years old. Actually, he was 28 years old. The 19 Letters of Benaziel, right? Neunst and Brufen, uh, and in which I'm sure many of you have read this. If not, it's a very interesting thing to read. A lot of it is not politically correct anymore, and so they have a lot of censored editions of the 19 letters, that I assure you. But nevertheless... Uh, basically, what he says is, I totally get it. it, it the Judaism, as presented today, generally speaking, is a turn off. Uh, this is, by the way, an eternal uh, uh, com- uh, complaint. I mean, you know, in the time of the Rambam's writing this way. way ever. That's the difference between Jews and members of other religions. You talk to somebody who converted or joined another religion. Now they're a Buddhist. Oh, I found Nirvana. If you're a Catholic, I found this. You ask a Jew, he became a religious Jew. How do you like Judaism? Eh. <laughs> that's real. Yeah. I like this part, but then I know, you know, this shows a term, that's who we are. So um, anyway, the result is that he publishes this book, and uh, it's in German, of course, and, uh, you know, so it, 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 the main audience would be people who could read German, and one of them is Gretz, who lives not that far away. Uh, let's go back to that map for a moment. Yeah, it's done. Here's the Oldenburg, and here is, uh, this is the Prussian armpit. Right? And here's uh, where, where Gretz is. So, it's, you know, it's, it's all eastern and north and central, uh, central Germany. He's not that far away. And so, uh, it, it, it blows him away. Okay? I mean, it blows him away. And the result is that uh, he writes to Gretz. He says, oh, you read a book? You're my Messiah, you know? He, means, he uses these words. You know, he, 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 you're my savior. Uh, you're unbelievable. You're amazing. You're wow. I'm going to come and, and, and be your disciple. And Hirsch. Writes back, Hirsch was a 20 year old. And he says, I'm, I'm delighted to have someone who wants to learn me, but don't get exaggerated opinion about me. Whatever you think about me, cut that in half, and then cut that again in half. And even then, it'd be exaggeration. Uh, but if you're still interested, and he is interested, and so he comes and he lives for three years with Sam Sprayfell Hirsch. Okay, isn't this interesting? He lives in his house. Now, Hirsch is young and married, so it's not a great situation, you know? But nevertheless, it isn't because the wife and the thing don't get along. Uh, right, but, that, but but we'll put that aside for the moment, and and uh, uh, here's a guy that that sits with him, uh, you know, all day long, and they work at a rigorous daily schedule, and it's all written up in in Grant's uh, memoirs, in his uh, Tagebuch, in his uh, diaries, and you know, really, you know, eight to nine is uh, Greek. And then breakfast, and then nine to ten is uh, B'bonziyah, and then ten to eleven is the Chosha Mishpat, and then eleven to twelve is the, the, you know the Basinaj is a history of the Jews, and then this and this, and so much time for for Greek, and so much time for this. It's a tough, uh, it's a tough, rigorous schedule, and for three years, and he takes Gretz around with him, and after a while he says, you know, you go to this town to and the Yom question of it, because I don't have time to go there. It's they they had a, a very interesting kind of um, of relationship, but. At first, he was blown away. After three years, he loses his own respect. Okay? The student did for the master. Okay? Um, Hirsch is too from. He's insufficiently knowledgeable about Jewish history. There are other causes for the estrangement. All he knows is he's interested in these post game books and all the rest of it. Uh, so basically, he has a good mind. He's throwing it away. That's, that becomes his, his evaluation of Hirsch. He's too uh, narrow by nature. Hirsch does not leave a diary when he thinks about Gretz. Um, Hirsch was, after all, a romantic philosopher by temperament. Well, you know what I mean when I say a romantic philosopher? He conceives of an ideal past. That's what romanticism means. Long ago, Judaism was done right and the world was gewaldic. Now, if you read the 18th letter, then things got screwed up. The, the Judaism became misunderstood for thousands of years, and that's a shame. Then we have to restore it. But there's an ideal state of, 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 of being a, Ju- a Judaism. Um, but one thing is clear. If he's a philosopher, he's not a historian. You get it? I've said this before. Philosophers and historians are natural enemies. A philosopher is interested in the picture like that. And why is it that way? And the historian is totally trashing the philosopher. He'll say, yeah, you just saw that because you read three books, and your mother was bad too when you were young, and you lived in the time of the French Revolution. You know, they, by contextualizing it, they, they deconstruct it. So um, nevertheless, Hirsch um, was really turned off by what he regarded as uh, the modern practice of Jewish history. You get what I'm saying? He was opposed to Jewish history in principle. Now, I don't mean he was opposed to the past. I mean he was opposed to the way Jewish history is written and practiced and researched in the modern times. So he expressed it very eloquently. Look at this. It's a famous sermon. We who have imbibed the spirit of modern Judaism, this is said rhetorically, <laughs> we do not fast. We don't pray or anymore. This would be your person who's a Jewish historian. Instead, we would be ashamed of the tear in our eye to sign our best for the temple. We'd be ashamed to feel the slightest longing for bringing back bloody sacrificial rites. Here we are today starting the Book of Aikra and the conservative reform and all those that go crazy over sacrifices and things like that. Uh, Nothing new for us. All this has become a myth with our feelings refined by a cool reality. And here's the sarcasm. With an unbiased scientific insight we understand, and evaluate those very differently. Moses and Hesiod, the Greek guy; David and Sappho, Deborah and Terteus, Isaiah and Homer, Delphi and Jerusalem, Pisces and tripod, a sanctuary, the sanctuary of cherubim, prophets and oracle, Psalm and Algae. In other words, Greek stuff, Jewish stuff. It's all from the same past. We view this calmly, historic, historically. For us, all this has peacefully been encased and buried in our mind, reduced to one and the same human origin. For us. All this has received an identical meaning, human and transitory, and of a bygone age. So again, he's mocking the historians. Okay, all this all is said sarcastically. You follow? And uh, the fog is lifted. The tears and, and sighs of our fathers do not fill our breasts anymore; they fill our libraries. So now we don't, we don't, we don't uh, fast on tishah But I can tell you the year it happened, and I can tell you how many people were in the Roman army. You know, like that. And I can tell you what year Josephus was published. You, you follow? You know that, that approach. The warmly pulsating heart of our fathers, meaning in our parents' time, they actually kept Shabbos. They kept Tisha B'Av. Here's Pesach. They made a Seder. Now I can tell you the origins of the Seder, <laughs> you know, historically. It's a different sort of thing. Now uh, it's become our national literature. Now it's not the Torah, it's the national literature. Okay? <laughs> Their art and life breath of our forefathers now is the dust of letters. On Tisha B'Av, we let the old guys pray Sleek of the Dukinos. We, however, know much better than they do, in which centuries, right? The poets flourished. In what meter they wrote their verse, at whose breast they fed when they were sucklings. We adore Jewish antiquity so much that we raise all the dust in the libraries and collections to find that the date of birth and death of the authors register correctly the inscriptions or their tombstones. That's exactly what Tzuntz and Steinsteiner does, and people like that. You want to get it right. Now, you could be there. This is going to, you know, you could say, I guess, whoa, that's important too. But to her she's like this, not when it replaces Judaism, not when history becomes the way Judaism is lived, uh, we take care that now, as the old Judaism is carried to its grave, at least the memory is kept alive in the histories of literature, that now and then the evergreen around the grave sheds a few of its needles in our scholarly temple. Our simple-minded fathers who were from, you know, our simple-minded fathers did not believe in the death of the authors at all. They, their song, lamentation, and all that lived on in the breasts of thousands of Jews. Now, how dumb they were. Didn't they know that these people died long ago? You see what I'm saying? But he said, which, which is the healthier Judaism? While their weather-worn tombstones were crumbling in the graveyard, every Jewish heart was their mausoleum and ensured that the only kind of immortality they desired, which was that the song might obliterate the poet, the prayer, its author, and the thought, the man who had given expression to it. So, for example, we don't know who Reuven Khaliri is. I spoke about it a couple of months ago. Big deal. But we say today <laughs> it's Likas, right? And we recite his poems. And so he lives. And that's the old, Hirsch argues that's the old Jewish attitude. To heck with the history, keep it alive. Rabbi Greenblatt from Memphis, I remember a couple of years ago, he was in Near Israel, and he said, this was his way of saying it. He said, uh, uh, a history professor in Memphis said to him, Isn't it terrible? That the Jews don't know or do, don't try to find out where Rashi's grave is. This is what, not the green eye. So the grave is, and he said, I said to him, I said, when did Rashi die? Oh my, I'm shocked, right? <laughs> you know. Now you understand what's going on over here, but that's what Hershey's doing. He says, when they thought, when our forefathers thought and felt and sung, I mean the, the Kaliri, became the living property of nation, its origins the accidental organ by which national feelings have been voiced. They can now step back into the shadow of oblivion. None of the Rebbelezer Khaliri doesn't care where he lies buried. He wants that his work should be used. You see, so will these depressed spirits delight in the literary gratitude of our generation? Whom will they recognize as their inheritors? Who were or Khaliri, for example, and people like that recognize inheritors? Those who prayed their prayers and forgot their names, or those who forgot their prayer but remember their names. So this is a now I told you the guy went to a good school, <laughs> English comp. You know, so, uh, uh, the po- it's a rhetorically, it's a masterpiece. The, the, the point is, it's an attack on antiquarianism, right? It's not exactly an attack on Jewish history, but it's an attack on the preoccupation of finding little facts, and that becomes the uh, substance of your Judaism. So, uh, let's put it this way. That wasn't necessarily the greatest up for a guy with whom he's living with Heinrich regrets, you know? Now, um, as I said before, this didn't work out so great. So, after three years, Gretz leaves. He returns back home to Prussian Poland. For two years, he tutors to, to save money and go to college. The college was not free. Poor guy. I mean, financially poor. In 1842, he goes to the university in Breslau. Breslau is in Eastern Germany. Now, today, it's a part of Poland. It was the headquarters of the capital of Prussian Poland with a famous old-standing Jewish community. And, uh, and that's the city where he'll spend most of his life. Breslau has a Jewish community, has a university, Choshevi University. And um, things will happen there. Um, I'll say it again. Breslau was a place that you know that had a, a tra- the, still had a traditional families, um, long um, shall I say tr- traditions of, of learning, scholarship. It wasn't just a hick town. Now um, at that time, there was a big fight going on in Breslau, one of the famous fights of the Reform movement. Who should be the next rabbi? The old rabbi was this guy, Rabbi Abraham Tichton, and the new guy was Geiger and uh, basically two elements in the community. I know you're shocked to hear that the Jewish community has a mechleikis, but this is one of the famous ones. in which the younger element or a certain element wanted the new preacher. This guy wouldn't have him at all. They said have him as an assistant rabbi. He's not a rabbi at all. He says he has smicha. He doesn't believe in the Torah. He does believe. Now, now we end up with the YCT arguments. You know? He said he does believe. No, he doesn't believe. And they, each side writes to the Prussian government, the Prussian government sends out questions to rabbis. Does he believe? He doesn't believe. He got totally messy you see? And uh, in the long run, like, you know, after a long time, this guy died, Geiger is succeeded by his son who didn't have the father's prestige, and Geiger becomes the main rabbi of the community, which means half the community is not Geiger's and welcome to Germany in the middle of the 1800s. You have these huge, uh, bitter uh, communal uh, fights. Uh, Meanwhile, Gretz is getting his doctorate in Semitics in 1845, right there. So he's living right in the middle of this uh, uh, cauldron of Jewish... uh, communal battles over orthodoxy and reform. Uh, his, his Latin dissertation was on Gnosticism and Judaism, which is not so dumb, because Gnostics believe in, in duality. And there are a lot of statements, he argues, that you can see in that uh, regard. Many of the statements of Rabbi Akiva, he argues, have to do with the Gnostic controversy at that time. Rabbi Akiva is always asserting that things that look twofold are really one. Hakol Tzafoi Voharashus Nasuna, for example, free will, and predestination. Uh, the four stories he interprets of the people going into the parties has to do with, with, with wrestling with questions of Gnosticism, because it says one of the four great rabbis there, Alicia Benavuya, ends up believing in and two in two gods, as it were, two, two realities, I meaning he became a Gnostic as a result of this experience, not going to a par- paradise, but you know, reading probably literature. That's how he would darshan it. And it's, a, it's highly imaginative. The question is whether it's sound, but it's highly imaginative. For the rest of the decade, in the 1840s, what can a Jew do with a PhD in history in Germany? Take it from me, that's a good question. The Goyim won't give you a job, and the Jews don't give a hoot for Jewish history. Not at that time. Grant's tried a few problems to be a rabbi, but believe it or not, he was no pulpiteer. It's funny, he got stage fright on Yom Kippur just when he's about to deliver the sermon, even though it's, it's funny to imagine. But I do know, it's funny, I've, I've, I've met people, uh, I had friends in, in Shoal. Uh, who delivered speeches in front of many, many people, but if you ask to Adam for the Ahmed, they, 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 they got scared. It's, uh, it's interesting. So the only thing he can go to is a chinuch, education. But what kind of education? He's the principal of elementary schools and Bressa. This, this, this is why he got a PhD. I, I guess the only thing he can do is get a career in journalism. That's what he figures. So as he goes to Vienna on the way to try to see if he can get a job with a Jewish newspaper, uh, he has a major Parnassus crisis, at the same time, in 1847, Sam Seraphil Hirsch moves and becomes the chief rabbi of Moravia. So Hirsch moved from being from a rinky dink nothing little uh, uh, Medina, which was Oldenburg, it was like nothing going on over there, to uh, here's, uh, here's Moravia. It doesn't look so big in the whole Austrian Empire, and it's not physically so big, but it's very of. Uh, there are many communities there. They're all small, but there are many communities. And Nicholsburg and places like that, Ebeschutz, these have a long, rich Jewish history for hundreds of years, famous rabbis, yeshivas. I don't want to spend the time at the Shai Takanas, the 310 Tachonus, to go back to the 1500s, 1600s. Uh, there was a chief rabbi appointed by the government in Moravia, and he's in charge of all the kahilas, and he's in charge of all the yeshivas. There, there are Tachonus way back when that every community of 20 families has to make a yeshiva in their town, and that everybody learns the same Masechta in the entire medina every isman. It's a very interesting place. Now, Moravia was going through a, a situation where the old was dying and the new was coming in and Hirsch sort of seemed like to both sides. Let's put it this way. The left-wingers saw him as a left-winger. The right-wingers saw him as a right-winger. Therefore, he had a terrible time. <laughs> right? Because he was obviously, when he came, he was obviously too far to the right for the left and too far to the left for the right. I mean, that, that, that is what happened. This is known as a very unhappy period in Hirsch's life. It wasn't a good shidduch. But meanwhile, Gretz comes there and the guy he used to live with, even though they're not crazy about each other anymore, but they still had a relationship, and he got him a job. Or at least, let's put it this way. One of the big projects Hirsch has is to start a rabbinical seminary, a Jewish theological seminary of his own. Now, this didn't happen in the end, because the money didn't come through. And he's going to appoint Gretz as the professor of Jewish history. This is a real what-if in Jewish history. Suppose the JTS had been found by simpson Raphael Hirsch, okay? And suppose the JTS had as a history professor Gretz. It boggles the mind. But uh, it, never, it, it, it never happened. It never materialized. The idea of a seminary versus yeshiva is a big sweeping business in the 1800s. And I will say from the middle 1800s to the middle of the 1900s, the seminary in Western minds was Doha the yeshiva model. You get it? Um, the idea of a seminary, which is sort of like a, something along the lines of a grad school. Uh, the universities wouldn't teach anything Jewish, and so the Jews said, we'll set up our own, but we'll have the ethos of a grad school. And therefore, instead of Rashivas there will be professors. And instead of just learning cha there'll be a highly directed curriculum. And then it's a question of, but the classes are only like an hour apiece, and uh, what will be the subjects that are taught over there, how much, put it this way, how much Gemara and how much Postgum is in there, as opposed to homiletics, Jewish history, grammar, and philosophy, and things like that. And these are issues that people raised with, but then the guy, at the same time you're going to a seminary, it's expected you'll also go to a grad school and get a PhD. Then you come at Rabbi Doctor. And this was the perfect model that spread all over the uh, Jewish world in the 1800s. Uh, we'll see, there were three of them in Germany, there was one in Amsterdam, then in Rome, and then in Rhodes, and then in uh, Paris, and Jewish College in London, eventually in the United States of America, as we all know. Um, there were half the people who started while you wanted a seminary, half the people who started while you wanted a yeshiva, they haven't worked that out even today. Um, and uh, there were big attempts to put the seminaries in, in, in Lithuania and Russia and places like I mean, they, you know, the front fought it. But it's, 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 you know, the, the seminary model had a great cachet. Today, things have different... Today, the, the seminaries are trying to imitate yeshivas. It's, it's interesting, you know, it's come full circle. And so you'll even see this boggles the mind. The Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati has a program, what they call Kolel. <laughs> you know. It's, uh, I mean, no, just to use that word shows you that the, the uh, gravity has shifted in, in the culture. Anyhow, um, the point is, by this time, the, si- the situation between Sam Spirainville-Hersh and Gretz, Heinrich is complex. They have important things in common, but they also have a lot of things different, right? They have all important differences in attitude. Both of these, the commonalities and the differences, would be of significant importance in the history of the Jewish people, next two centuries, down till today. Both of them were violently anti-reform. Both polemicized against the extreme reform that reared its head in the 1840s, because in 1842, 3, 4, and 5, they had these reform conferences in which a dozen, two dozen reform-type rabbis or chazanin, whatever, got together in Germany. Some of them had education, some didn't have education, and they said, we can get rid of Shabbos, we can get a kashu, we can get rid of, of, of this, that, and the other. You know, bris Milo was up for discussion. Hebrew as the language of prayer was up for discussion. All these sorts of things. And um, in Brunswick and, Br- and Frankfurt and Breslau, that's where the three uh, were over there. And the traditionalists were really turned off. Like, who the heck are you to just say like this, we're abolishing the second day yontif. You know, who, who made you God? You know what I mean? We're getting rid of, uh, you know, uh, Yibum or something. I don't know. You know j- j- there's this unilateral business. When it's when it's 20 people, uh, 25 people, but they were totally self-confident. Samuel Holtheim, Geiger and others, their ideas like this, what can I do? The whole world's wrong. I'm right. I'm going with this. I'm not going to be followed by everybody else. It's stupid. So Hirsch and Gritz, both of them wrote very bitterly, as did many. In other words, to put it in American terms, when these early reform moves came, they elicited profound protest and opposition from the Orthodox and the conservative. They didn't have those names yet, but you understand a conservative Jew, as we would end up calling later on, would also be profoundly offended in the 1800s by somebody's just unilateral moves and basically declaring that you know the halacha doesn't count or any of this kind of stuff counts. And, as we'll see as time goes on, Hirsch would represent the Orthodox people that would, would he would would characterize the Orthodox people represented, and Gretz will end up being what we would call the conservative people that didn't like it. But Hirsch and Gretz differ in that one is Orthodox and very pious by nature, and one is more moved by uh, traditionalism and by national pride. Okay? Um, This expressed itself in halachically in that the conservatives, from day one, were very opposed to Chumras and extra minhagim, and the Orthodox wanted to hold in every every minute for this reason, right? So the conservatives already in the 1800s will say, get rid of the piyutim. The Orthodox say, oh, you can't get rid of any piyut, which is why it's always been a political football ever since then. Uh, In other words, we see the beginning of the split in the big tent of traditionalism into two wings, Orthodox and conservative, although those names weren't there yet. Now, back in the last week, in Azari de Rossi's time in the 1500s, there was no such sharp split. There were just different wings of the same continuum. But in the impact of historicism, of the 19th century, the old continuum will break and it'll turn into two very opposed uh, Jewish uh, movements, as we know, looking back 150 years later. By 1850-51, Gretz does not look to Hirsch as his guide, oh my goodness, but to another rabbi, with whom he had no personal history, but with whose ideas he could identify. And this was Zechariah Frankel, who, uh, again, lived all through the 1801-1874. Zechariah Frankel was from Prague, from a very sticker family. He came from uh, Rabbi I mean from famous names on the mother's side and on the father side. Came from a big Yichus family of Rabonim and, and learning and all this. He himself learned uh, as a and many years with Ronsberg, doing the side of the page of the Gemara, with Ronsberg himself. And um, you know, and he had no secular studies. Whatever he did, meaning he didn't go to school. He had private tutors, you know. So he, this is a guy who picks up a lot of learning at a young age, and then he goes to Budapest to the university and, and goes there for so-and-so many years and gets a PhD. So here's somebody with a very uh, distinguished background and a very good in learning and now he has a doctorate and he goes first to Templeton and then especially to Dresden which was the capital of a kingdom of Saxony um, and uh, he becomes a very dynamic rabbinical figure in Germany because he's basically this is the first rabbi doctor that I'm describing. Uh, he's the first guy who was a genuine Talmud Chacham with a PhD. Very self-confident guy Uh He's in Dresden, and the government takes him because he has a doctorate, and the Berlin community wants him. And he said, i only go on my terms. And they say, don't tell us what to do. He said, well, you all can drop dead or something like that. And they said, then we accept you, <laughs> I mean, and then, which is an interesting. But, uh, uh, but in the end, he says, no. You know, if you, if, Since you have reformed Jews there, you won't listen to my authority totally. I, I don't feel like the, if it, he, he He can call his own shots. Uh, he's very self-confident because he gets into a big fight with the Chassam Sofer in the last year, the Chassam Sofer's life, over a very messy affair about a guy that was kicked out of a, a rabbinical position in Hungary. And was it politics or was it Yiddishkeit? And he cussed out the Chassam Sofer, so he doesn't care about anything over there, right? Um, and he, therefore, had a funny profile. Is he a rabbi or a doctor? Or let's put it this way, is he a right-winger or a left-winger? The Reform look at him as a left-winger, but they invite him to the Reform Conference in, uh, in 1845, which very famously, he attends and then demonstrably leaves. Okay? He came, and, and what he left on was like this. They said, maybe we should get rid of Hebrew and put in German. That's an offense to Judaism, to the Jewish core, and I have nothing to do with this group. So he went on purpose to walk out. And he made a big splash with the walkout. Notice, he wasn't complaining because he got rid of Bismillah, right? He wasn't complaining because he got rid of Second Day Yontov. He was complaining because he got rid of the Hebrew as the language of prayer. So he's appealing to to uh, Jewish self-respect and connection with the past. All right? But he does write all kind of Azari de Rossi type stuff in which he is totally dissing the from ahistoricism. His works, there are too many to go into. He's an antiquarian, uh, historian of halacha, and he has lots of uh, articles in which he says, where does the Gemara come from, where does the Mishnah come from, in which he is no fundamentalist at all. Okay? Unlike the Zari de Rossi, is mainly interested in the history of halacha. He knew how to learn he was interested where did the Mishnah come from, really? And who made it up? And you know, when did the myth come that it comes from Moshe Rebano? You know, that, that, that kind of way. And can we see origins of this in the Greek writings? Uh, how's it go? In Alexandria, in the pre Second Temple era, and the, all, all that kind of business. Um, and so, basically, he's interested in a radioactive subject. Right? Because you're talking about the history of Allah, you're talking about the, the origin of the Gemara. Part of the fundamentalism is not only believing in the Torah, you believe believing in Torah Shabbat so, what you really are saying, if you believe in Torah Shabbat, is that the Gemara, at least as a generality, represents as close as you get to what God said to Moshe and Har Sinai. And it, this guy said, it as, Well, not really, you know, so they made it all. But nevertheless, it's very important. So, you could view that as, as you know, uh, crucial or not. I'll tell you the truth. You can laugh all you want. This is what's going on now with the OICT thing. Now, um, he doesn't see it as radioactive, he's a compartmentalizer. That's who he is, but he's a compartmentalizer. Um, he, for example, he, all through his life he asserted dogmatically, a Jew has to believe that the Chumash was given by God on Mount Sinai. There's no evidence for that, but that's what a Jew is. The Gemara is a different story. You said you know, That's his way. Um, and the result is that you have a just very interesting guy who gets an unusual break. Now here comes the funny part. I told you before that there was a city of Breslau. I told you before there was a huge debate between Geiger and Tiktin over who should be the rabbi. I told you that Geiger won with a, left a lot of um, disgruntled individuals over there. Like half the community would spit at him, you know. The other community worshipped him, and he would spit back at them. He also, Geiger was a very smart guy, and he said what we need is a modern institution for the training of modern German rabbis, people in which have a full Jewish education with a PhD. And he preached it as Yom of Elilah. In the end, he persuaded the Balabatim that they should do it. But then they said like this, you shouldn't be the head of it, you're too controversial. (laughs) Which, this broke his heart, because his whole life was devoted to the idea that they'll set up a seminary, and he'll be the head, and then he'll train generations of rabbis along his lines. But his own president of his own shul said, you're not the right guy for this, which drove him crazy. Now... uh, and it so happened that the money came in an unusual way because there were these like three Frankel brothers, this is the story they tell, the three Frankel brothers, I don't think they were married and they are all in the wax business and then what happened was they wrote a, uh, they wrote, this is a famous story, they wrote a, uh, an order that they gave to one of their clerks for let's say for example of 5,000 uh, pounds of wax or something like that and the guy made a mistake and wrote 500,000. So next thing you know, the wagon trains are coming into Breslau. <laughs> You know, you know, and he said, oh my God, what happened? But then it dawned on them. What do you think dawned on them? <laughs> they courted the market. <laughs> they bought up all the wax in Germany. There wasn't, this was a coup that could never happen if it was planned. You understand? So now they owned all the wax, so they became bazillionaires. You see? So the result is that they founded. They gave the money what used to be called the Jüdische Theologische Seminar, Frankel Frankl- Stiftung. Right? The Jewish theological seminary, the Frankel Foundation, because the Frankel gave the money. And uh, Frankel also was a guy who said, I guess, Geiger is too extreme, too controversial. Let's get somebody who's in the middle, Zechariah Frankel. No relation to them. So this guy, he said, I guess, if you give me total control, I'll come. And then they did, and so he moved and spent the rest of his life, about 20 years or so, building up the first JTS, which became world famous, OK? Uh, Frankel. And the first thing he had to do was uh, to put together a uh, faculty. And the first guy he wants is Gretz. In fact, his, his main two guys on the faculty, he says, I'll teach the Gemara, thank you very much. You know, I know that stuff. But I know Gretz is an uh, enthusiast for Jewish history, so let him do that. He'll share his enthusiasm with the students. And for the limudichol part, for philosophy and that sort of thing, he got Rabbi Bernays' son, uh, Bernays had a strange situation. He had three children. And uh, one of them converted to Christianity to get a job as a professor. And one of them just was not from. And his daughter married Sigmund Freud. And this guy was the only one who was from but never got married because he was gay. And they found this out, you know, the, the letters had been published in Germany. And so, I mean, it's a Shomer Shabbos. I mean, it, look, it can happen. You know, so so it, he had a very strange uh, uh, family situation. And, but Frankel can say like this, I got Bernays' son. You understand? And, uh, and that's what they did. So, I mean, the fact that his niece married Sigmund Freud, you know, it doesn't get better than that. Then look what it says. You know, the first thing Freud says that he's into human feelings is, uh, you know, you light the candles on Friday night, I'll kill you. Uh, anyway, for Gretz, this was a uh, Ghanedin. is to Abanashi. I mean, it doesn't get better than this, right? For a guy from a poor background, all the rest of it. Now he has grad students to, teach, to lecture in Jewish history. Uh, you'll never get a job in a real university because you're Jewish. This is as close it'll get, and this place will be run on, on as secular advanced lines as possible. Um, and so they're developed here The JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary of Breslau, which became the inspiration for all those institutions that copied them, especially the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. Okay, uh, Frankel was the Rosh Hashiva, I guess you'd say, the rector, and he articulates his famous philosophy of positive historical uh, Judaism, in which he looks, without using my terminology, but he looks at these four, right, and basically says like this, number three, forget it, number four, forget it, number one, kind of forget it, but number two is very important. Right? It's a very unusual lie, right? Now, I don't know if the Talmud really comes from God, but you got to keep it. Okay? And so he keeps all them and hug him and the and the but, you know, if you ask, like, really why... Uh, because it's positive historical. Positive in G- German in 19th century means legal. The Jewish religion is what it has been. Our, the study of its history tells you what Judaism is, not myths. The study of its history. And the Jewish of history is there is no such thing as Judaism without Shabbos. That's just the way it goes. And if these Reform guys denied it, they're just lying. There's no such thing as Judaism without Brismillah. That's what it is. There's no such thing as Judaism without a Seder. If you want to know the origin of the Seder or where Brismillah came in, that's a different story. But that's what Judaism is. Hence, the creation of this uh, phenomenon, which we will eventually come to call conservative Judaism. It was a lot more halakhic at that time. But, um, but this was the uh, basic philosophy. Uh, now, Frankel wouldn't say it the way I just said it, or with Gretz, but that's, that is what they held. So it, what's really interesting is, let's go back to the four uh, pillars. Yeah. It's not this, it's not this, it's number three. Isn't that interesting? The thing that really motivates them, and this is true of conservative Jews, or conservative, sympathetic Jews, um, I'm thinking of one particular person in this audience, he says, oh, but, but Jews, for community is the main thing. You get it? Not, not autonomous, not coercive, but community is, is the okay? Uh That's where the Associated elders are coming from. The Federation, they say, it doesn't matter what you believe. And it doesn't matter what you, uh, uh, you know, uh, have theology. It doesn't matter even what you practice in terms of uh, mitzvahs but you're part of the community. <laughs> right? now, does that work, or is that just a hollow slogan? You follow? Now, the associate is, is, is facing this crisis today. But until mm-hmm. recently, it has worked. Right? Until a generation ago, it worked. And the emphasis is on the community. You want to go to this, sonica, that's, that's OK. But are you a member of the associate? Are you a member of the, of the community? Are you active in maintaining mm-hmm. the Jewish community? Why should there be a Jewish community? That's not important. But <laughs> it's a, a, a community. Now, the Orthodox, the other goes, no, it matters. Why is there a community? Don't talk about that. So you have these big attitudes that come in there. And uh, the Icar, as they say, was that the Orthodox disagree. And Hirsch becomes the poster boy for the uh, principal exposition of the disagreement. The fight goes on, as we know, down till today. Frankel and Gretz perceived that you cannot reach the younger generation, that's the college grad generation, with Shiurim and Gemara and Halacha and Musa and Kabbalah. They're too far removed from that. But you can get them with, with, with history lectures. right? That's the argument anyway. You can get them with history lectures. And so Frankel <laughs> so Fran Fra- wait a second. They're not, talk- they're not talking about this audience though. He says, Frankel founds a very famous magazine which was there for decades, the Monatship for Geschichte und Wissenschaft des Judentums, right? Which was uh, became the number one academic journal in the Jewish world. It was the journal of the DTS. But looking back, can Jewish history Much as I like it. Can Jewish history save Judaism and Jewish practice? Thus, from 1854 to his death nearly 40 years later, Heinrich Gretz would have the best available job for a Jewish historian in the 19th century. Didn't get better than that. okay? He energetically set about executing a grand design. He says, I am not an antiquarian. I'm not interested in spending my life writing a history of of Jewish shoe leather. You know, something like that, right? Or when did they change the language of the Uh, he writes an, a 12-volume full history of the Jewish people, which is something that had never been done before. Okay? That is a big project. From day one, as far as he can get it now, he wrote it backwards because you can't start with that. But nevertheless, um, by the time he's finished, this book became perhaps the most influential book in the, in the modern era. People don't, don't realize that, for better or for worse. Now, he wasn't exactly the first. There was a guy before him, uh, uh, Isaac Marcus Yoss, who was no who was no historian at all. He had no Tom, and uh, it was a failure. He uh, basically took the attitude, Judaism should have reformed after the Bias Rishan, and since it did, not everything was screwed up ever since then. So you can imagine what kind of a history that he wrote. But Gratz is not like that. He, him, Jewish history, is a dramatic movie in the 19th century historian mode. You read Gratz, you're reading Michelet about France, you're reading Macaulay about England, and you're reading Bancroft about America. That's who he is. There are villains and heroes, don't worry about it, 1853 to 1875. It took him 20 years lecturing the, to his students and writing the books, 12 volumes. first volume came out in 1853, just before he began at the JTS. It was volume four about the Talmudic era. That's the first volume he wrote about the time of the Gemara. Other volumes appeared not in order, but by the end, the whole thing is done. And in discussing the Tanoim and Amarayim, Gretz wanted to make these figures who were remote to the Jewish Uh, Like you'd say today, Jewish uh, German Jewish contemporaries, it is figures. I mean, they look at a rabbi in the Talmud as a boring guy with a long beard or something like that. He wanted to come alive as dramatic and fascinating human figures, and so he let his imagination run wild. What the heck? And Shammai and his followers, for example, were anti-Roman radicals. They were the price tags of the old times, right? You know, talked about in Israel, they put, they put, they put. Look at this. Uh, Muhammad is a pig. Jesus is a jerk or something like that. Jesus is a monkey. You know, the, you know the, 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 in other words, they were irresponsible nuts. That's basically what he says. Uh, whose irresponsible antics resulted in the criminal irresponsibility of the zealous. Notice, beishamai, and that legacy led to the Khormon Bes Amikdush. Beis Hill, on the other hand, were the moderates who favored peaceful relations with the Romans. You understand? <laughs> they were the establishment figures. That's how it and by the way, he's very ingenious. He'll take, you know, this line from Beishamah here or that, from Beishel there. And the rabbis, j- just get over this. This is Gretz. The rabbis he likes are painted in the brightest historical colors. The rabbis he disliked are painted in the darkest black. There's never a boring moment when it comes to Gretz, okay? This is Beishamah, this is Beishel, you know, and that's how it goes. Now, this became a trademark of his writing. Plus, he also loves contrasts. And so he always begins his chapters or books the contrast there is the, con- the, the 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 beginning of the 18th century saw two trends emerge: one positive, one negative. Here's the positive one: Moses Mendelssohn, at the same time a contemporary, led the Jews into blackest darkness. Oh, the 1600s saw two figures emerge: one representing the brightest possibilities of philosophical inquiry, and one representing Zohar charlatanism. Yeah. Oh, the 1100s was amazing. 1200s it saw the brilliance of Maimonides on the one hand showing the synthesis of Judaism and the best the world culture and the czar, this famous forgery that led the Jews into mystical, crazy, you know, that's his style. Compare and contrast. High school teachers do that. Now, um, <laughs> Gretz dedicated his first volume to Samson, Raphael, Hirsch. Obviously, he thought Hirsch would like it. After all, he had brought alive the Chazal. Big mistake, my friends. Hirsch damns Gretz to hell <laughs> and a half, Okay. And so, basically, uh, this is a famous parasha in the biography of, of, of Hirsch, when he took on uh, Gretz over here. Uh, let's, look at this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read the whole of it, but, 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 but you should read it. This is in the volume five of the collective, I know you know what I'm talking about. Volume five of the collective writings of Hirsch is all about his attacks on Gretz and Frankel. This whole fat book, that's, that's all it is. Okay, so he obviously had a lot to say on the subject. And as you can see, he says, I once had a young friend who was a deaf mute. He was a rather popular artist in one of the capitals. All of his portraits looked very much alike because he was a deaf mute, yet they were not truly alike. He had a habit of painting all his pictures in colossal dimensions. All his paintings were much larger than life and had a strange spectral look. You could surmise the guy had sat for the portrait, but you couldn't say with certainty he was in. Recognition was not a result of visual perception. Meaning, I had a guy who was, uh, had a Picasso-type attitude, uh, uh, extreme Impressionism. And so you look at the person who sat for him, there was somebody there, you know, right? But that's not necessarily what the guy looked like. When it comes to human subject, is not only his medium of perception as I, portrait is influenced by his emotions, any contemplation of human subject entails a conception of intellectual personality, and so on and so forth. This will explain why many portraits, although they cannot be dismissed as bad, show features which are so unlike the subject and so much at variance with his true character that those better acquainted with him as close friends and relations will categorically reject the portrait. Descartes has captured in his work a trait which is transient and accidental and made it a permanent aspect of the subject's personality. In fact, the portrait flagrantly contradicts the character person they know. Now, by the way, in art, that's okay. Would you agree with that? Not everybody wants. Not everybody wants. Esky Cook to do exactly the way you are. Some people look like a caricature. Get it? So you make the nose bigger and this. It's it's good for its purposes, but is it factual? <laughs> that's the point. If you're telling me you're writing, you're doing art. So it has its own reality. Get what I'm saying? So you know, if t- the same person sits for Picasso and for John Singer Sargent it's the same person it's going to be two totally different pictures agree now uh, regarding our deaf it might be uh, worthwhile to make it psychological to study whether deaf mute artists see their subjects in a light so different than normal portraits this is something unusual about it okay now here comes the good part now imagine an artist whose natural angle of vision caused him to see the subjects not long, larger but smaller imagine further over many years this artist created portraits for which his subjects never sat <laughs> he made it up Imagine, he bases work on an isolated trait in the subjects that may have come to his attention by accident, and that in addition may have been distorted by the artist's hasty (laughs) judgment and misinterpretation. This artist then brings his creative imagination to play, using the one trait as a basis for interpreting the personality of the subject as a whole. He portrays his subjects as he saw them once in unguarded moods, positions, or activities. In playful mood, pensive state, laughing, weeping, angry, joking, Some of his subjects are made to appear indignant, arrogant, impudent, others made to look depressive, anxious, humble, or embarrassed. But in thus portraying a person he sees only one note in the guy's whole range of emotions, a note which may have been played only once in his lifetime, but which the artist has perpetuated as the keynote and the dominant character. Now let us also imagine that years later this artist presents us these sketches as true-to-life portraits committing the error of explaining transient moods in which he painted subjects as typical of their character. This guy was always laughing because he found the once laughing. Right? This one, an evil temper. That one's playing games. The other one's even thought. Even worse, he passes off these products of his imagination, not only his authentic character stretches, sketches, all of his subjects, but his prototypes of their contemporaries. You see, during this period, people were laughing. During that period, they were depressed. This was a time of arrogance. That was a time of anxiety and timidity. Because after all, I, f- I have a painting of a guy who was timid. Now let us say that in reply to our look of disbelief, the artist cites ancient chronicles. During that year, the cherries were sour, so everybody alive at that time had a sour look on the face. Or during this year, the future looked bright, so everybody was in a usually friendly mood. Say further that this artist clings to his fancies as if they were absolute truth, so much that when he never feels a, net, a historical reference, he needs one to authenticate his portrait, he feels free to invent a reference to suit the portrait. If you know all this, then you have the history of Gretz. <laughs> right? That's the beginning of a long thing. Now, uh, 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 now I, wait, hold on for a second. This sa- I want you to listen very closely, I want to say. This sounds as if it's an ad hominem attack, and it isn't. Right? He, believe it or not, take, just take my word for it or read it yourself, he doesn't go after Gretz personally, which would have been an interesting thing. But he went after him on academic principled grounds, which is very interesting, because hers wasn't... You know, I mean, he wasn't going to be silly just to, to vent. This is not some uh, blog or something like that, right? So, uh, wh- what did he say? Um, let's look at the next picture. What do I mean when I say the canons of historicity do not change? He said it like this You can't tell me where Yochanan ben Zachter was like because you cannot know what Yochanan ben Zachter was like. There are too few pieces of evidence, a few scattered passages here and there in the Talmud, a passage here, and that's all you have or Rabbi Akiva, or anybody else. It's sad, but it's a fact. You understand? You can't tell me because we know a story about Elisha and Abedavuya, or that you can right now write a biography over there. You were told a story. You are told 12 or 15 or 30 stories. That is not enough information to use the academic voice and say, as a PhD in history, I'm telling you, now you know really what it was like historically. Because the reader says, if a historian says it, he must have looked all this stuff up, and he must know really what he's talking about. And you don't know what you're talking about, because you cannot. Now, this is a frustrating fact for historians down until today. And take, take from me, I run at these guys all the time. People write whole kind of books about the Talmudic era, all the rest of it. We don't know that much. So be honest and say that. The whole point of history has to be empirical and, tr- and transparent. has to be peer-reviewed. So, you know, you can't write about somebody and say, I have 15, uh, you know, statements or facts or something like that and another 15 general things, which you know, I mean, anybody here knows that what you find in terms of actual historical information in the Talmud, very little. So be honest and say that. And by the way, currently they do. They'll say, I'm going to tell you what happened in Talmudic time, I'll tell you what the literature says, you know, what, what, what the books say about that with their own books, reference them. You can write a book called Rabbi Akiva and the Mishnah, you know, and and collect and discuss those. But don't make a pretense to say that you know what the time of Rabbi Akiva was like based on that. Now, that's a tough call for a guy like Gretz, for all the 19th century historians, because they say, yes, we don't have all the information, but we have to go, we can't leave it a blank, we have to portray something, and Herschel would say like this, no, you can't, that's dishonest. You get it? If you want to talk to me the language of history, you have to talk to me the language of history. If I know two things about Abram Avinu, then I don't know anything more than there was Abram Avinu in the two things. Get over it. You understand? Could you really, honestly speaking, could you write a biography of Abram Avinu based on the little that we have? You know, here's a person who lived a long, long time and we know a tiny group of episodes about his life. Is that enough to endow us with the uh, basis for academically, social science-wise, saying that now I can give you a a biography of this, of this person. Now, it's frustrating. I get it's frustrating, but he says you can't be a liar. But, of course, he calls him a liar. So the canons of historicity, meaning the rules, the academic rules of what you know and don't know, do not change. And, it's, it, and if it's tough, it's tough. This, of course, undermined the whole discipline of, of Talmudic history. Um, so, as you see, it wasn't simply that. Undaunted, Gretz ignores Hirsch and goes on to write a whole series. Uh Hirsch's attack on Gretz was followed a few years later by Hirsch's attack on Frankel, who wrote a book called Darkia Mishnah Vagamorva Sifra Vasifri, uh in which he had a programmatic history of, of the Tanaetic literature, and that's half the book over here. I'm not gonna read you that. My goodness. Hirsch you know went went after all these things. Now Frankel and Gretz got a lot of sympathy because when you're attacked, uh, basically, they said, Hirsch, you fanatic, get off their backs. And anyway, Frankel knows I'll learn better than you, they all said, and they really blessed them. And if you read there, Hirsch finds it necessary to say that the attacks upon me are not true and all this sort of thing. So it was a very interesting and bitter 1860s they had in Germany, but Hirsch didn't care. It's not a personal thing, he said. It's not heresy hunting, hair splitting. They're trying to pass themselves off as the left wing of orthodoxy, and really, they're the right wing of reform. And there is a difference. That's, that, that's what he wrote at that time, and subsequent history has proved this to be correct. I'll say it again. He said, what, you, what the conservatives are doing is they're trying to pass themselves off as the left wing of the Orthodox, and they did that for a long time, not anymore, but really they're the right wing of the Reform, meaning they reject the fundamentalism, and it's a big deal. We have this in Jewish life today without getting contemporary. Um, Hirsch never lets up for the rest of his life when his trenchant criticism of Graz and Frankel." And Hildesheimer, Hildesheimer, who was a more moderate than him, Hildesheimer, who ended up later on founding an Orthodox rabbinical seminary to compete with Gretz's seminary. That's what it was about. Also, they never stopped attacking, in a principled fashion, that Gretz is an as they put it, and Franco is an Apikoris, and this, and this, and this. And the others said, why are you so bitter and so uh, you know, uh, narrow-minded and all the rest So You guys are, are Meshugayim. And this was German-Jewish cultural life in the 19th century with a bitter battlefield. These fights defined, for better or worse, defined the Orthodox and Conservative as two very different things, to the immense annoyance of the Conservative. For many years, the Conservatives would claim to be Orthodox and that fundamentalism was not an essential feature of Orthodoxy, only Nominism was. If a person keeps the mitzvahs and gretz daven every day three times a day, put on tefillin every day with a Shamra shabbos, he kept kosher, he used to like to tell the story, that he went to a kosher restaurant, I forget where it was, somewhere in Germany, and the and the chief they served, and the lady said, I guess, this is Dr. Gretz? <laughs> Why? He says, You're the big Russia that I heard so much about, you know. <laughs> so he said, Did you read any of my books? No, he said, she said, I can't read, but I know you're a big Russia. Yeah, he liked he liked to tell that story. Anyway, the point is that um, it really uh, defined what comes to be known, you know, in the 20th century as conservative Judaism, all of whom claim, all these people claim that they they're really Orthodox. They're just on the left wing of Orthodox. And the belief in the historicity of the Talmud of it is not, a, is not an essential feature of Orthodoxy. And you right wingers don't get to define that for us. And the right wingers, oh, yes, we do. And there are the fights that you have over here. Um, as I said before, this is going on now with the YCT. Now, uh, with Abi Weiss, the Gratz made his own understanding of Judaism popular because he showed up. You can't just get anywhere by criticizing somebody. If a guy writes a 12-volume business, he, 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 he did something. Right, just to sit there and, and snipe from the side, anybody that's like uh, the comments on the blogs, you know, something like that. Meaning, uh, you do it, <laughs> okay? He, he's he's putting something together that was a, a monumental work. You do it, okay? Uh, he wrote an entire history of Jewish people, and it became the most read book of the 19th century. It was translated into more than 20 languages, including Chinese, by the way. It became the standard Jewish history. Gentiles refer to it. It is what it is. Harry S. Truman read it, you know, it's, uh, when, when he became president. Uh, Stephen Wise came to him and said, Let me tell you about the Jewish people. He said, I read the Brex rec- already. You understand? It's, this week, in other words, if you're in a public library in Europe or America, and if they have a history of the Jewish people, and it's the uh, late 1800s or the early 1900s, uh, and many of you will know what I'm talking about, where you say if you went to a certain type of show in the, in the show library, there will be the five, six volume of recs. That's how it goes. You understand? In addition to minuses, it had pluses. Gretz conceived of a Jewish people, an Am Yisrael, as an actual nation and not just a religion, the way the reformers or the assimilationists or the socialists pathetically argued. He said, we're a people. He's a German Jew and he's a patriot, but, he, but he's a Jew. Uh, we are, true, we're a nation without a state and we're a religion without a church. So what? How are we a people? We have a common literature and we have a common history of, of Kiddush Hashem, of sacrifices, on behalf of that literature. There is something he taught is called Judaism. There's a correct form of Judaism and there is an incorrect form of Judaism. The correct form of Judaism for grabs, obviously, is this. Okay, is the Rambam, right? He, he was uh, from God, and he had, and he, but he, did, he was open to general culture, but in the right way. The incorrect form of Judaism is has, has, has everybody the Tzedukim, the Christians, the Karaites, the Kabbalists, the mystics of all types, Haredi fanatics and opponents of secular studies, the entire Hasidic movement starting with the Baal Shem Tov, all Eastern European Jews because they lacked a uh, 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 German culture, ost the Yiddish, everything connected with that barbarous destruction of, 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 of the uh, German language, reformed Judaism every type, every Moscow every turn atheist, and that's just for starters, my friends. So when you read his book, there are heroes and there's a lot of villains and grits. Let's put it this way: the guy was not afraid to alienate people. He systematically ran around as a bull and he broke every piece of furniture in the store. But he didn't care, right? I would say actually it's part of his strength. Although he doesn't use his words, he would say, This is my take on Jewish history. That's who he was. He says, I'm standing up, I'm publishing it. Take your best shot. This is what I think. Okay? Let justice be done though the heavens fall. A historian without an opinion and the guts to write that opinion is pub- and argue it publicly is contemptible. That's who he was. So he said, I, I don't care. And to his credit, he cusses out the guy who he judges, who are judged based on how they treated the Jews. So he lived in Germany. The Crusaders were heroes. Oh boy, not the Gretz. This filth of uh, Europe, these uh, reprobates, and you know, they're all drunks and all. they got their kicks out of murdering Jewish families. All the rest of it. You understand, in Gretz's history... I'm not interested in Henry VIII, Louis XIV. Was he good for the Jews or was he bad? You see? So he read it from a Jewish point of view and he said, you don't like it, lump it. You see? Now, um, he's got opinions on every subject. He holds Yaakov Emden in his right. Therefore, he cusses out the Ramchal and the Abishits. Oh, he's the first one to make the whole argument. The Abishits was a $2 pill, you know. He was a phony from day one. He was a Sebatian through and through. He publishes the amulets and he gives the decoding. Oh, he's got the whole business over there um, he thinks that Mendelssohn was great, but Mendelssohn's followers like Friedlander and hertz Hamburg, who were assimilationists, were jerks. He calls them a lot worse than jerks. In other words, he is quite polemical. He believes Judaism is a great thing, but that many Jews down the centuries have gotten wrong. Everybody in this room believes that. <laughs> Just, the question is, you know, mine is right, yours is wrong. Um, but Judaism is stout enough to survive all that and renew itself, he argues. People who are Jews, who have zero connection to Judaism or Jewish culture, get no mention. So you find me, I, I, I bet you he has nothing to say, for example, uh, uh, you know, about uh, some guy who, a similar, who converted to Christianity and won a Nobel Prize. Gretz is like this, you left the Jewish people to act with you. You're not part of the history of Jewish people. It's interesting. And he, he says that, you see. Uh, Jewish history is about Jews. It's about Jewish religion and their culture, not about people who just happen to be Jewish. It's interesting. Gretz is interested in centers of culture, Eretz Israel, Egypt, Babylonia, Sfarad, Ashkenaz, Poland, Turkey, he wouldn't give a darn today for the Jewish community in Argentina or Uruguay, because he said nothing's going on over there, right? Now, a socialist going would be shocked. Oh, you're judging people, and they are people too, and if they have a vapid Judaism, vapid Judaism is also something to study, not to grasp. He would have no time for this sort of thing, you see? So he's very much um, an elitist in this sort of way. Uh, it's, it's rather, a surprisingly, from an elitist point of view, what can I tell you? If you go today, I mean, this is this is what the vapidity of contemporary Jewish culture. Here's the museum, you know, in Philly. Look what they look. Look what they're doing at the Jewish Museum in Maryland. There we go. A, a, a thing on tchotchkes. You see? Can you imagine what Gretz would say about the state of Jewish culture in Baltimore? If if the museum, which is dedicated to the glorification of Jewish culture, talks about Rick, Bratt, you know, <laughs> things that you on your keychain or something like this, he'd say, "What kind of stupidity is this?" You see? Um, there are four groups that disliked his history, obviously. The German Gentiles, the Reformed Jews, the Orthodox Jews, and the Eastern European Jews. The German Gentiles, whoa, they did not like being criticized. Heinrich von Treitschke who was the most famous German uh, uh, historian of Prussia in the 19th century, wrote a whole book, Gretz, the Traitor, the traitor to Germany. He criticized the Germans, because Gretz said, like this if the Germans murdered a Jewish community, that shows you who they really are. You know, that's the way he writes you get it, and if it was the Holy Roman Emperor who sold him out, he said he was a bum. He took the money and he sold him out. And you know, if it's a Pope, he calls it like he sees it. And Trotsky, in the time of Bismarck, couldn't stand it. And Gretz says, "I have the right to, to speak my mind. Uh, I back it up with sources." And Trotsky said, "This is the problem. The Juden unser Umgluck." I "No, no. The, the, the Jews are misfortune. They're stuck here. We they got all the rights. They can cuss us out. They, they 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 live off our benefits, and they stab us in the back." This is the origin of Hitler. You're saying you can do it from Treitschke to Hitler. Uh, so the Gentiles didn't like it when he told it the way it was. The German Jews were angry at Gretz because he, he, he got the guy angry. So when they had the National German Jewish Historical Commission, 1890, they wouldn't put Gretz on it, even though he's the number one historian. He said, you got the guy too angry at us. You understand? The German Jews were like, "Shut! don't make any trouble assimilating to Germany. Um, Gretz published the last volume, the 12th volume, about his own times, in which he in which he described Jewish history in Germany up to 1848, especially the rise of the reform movement. Whoa, baby! He goes after everybody, calls everybody, what, Geiger, These like guys, he He cusses out the reform and the assimilationists and he, he shechs them and tracks them and he, he does Malicha, he does everything over there. So the German Jews, who it's them, it's my father you're talking about, my grandfather. See, if you want to talk about Base Hill, oh, that's one thing. My father? Me? You know, you can't insult me. So he got a lot of enemies that way. The Eastern European Jews were all ticked off because Gretz writes about Jews in Poland and places like that as unkultur, you know? They, these are people, they lack culture. The villain gone, well, you know, but they're the unkultur. They speak Yiddish, they have a bad sanitation, the whole lifestyle is down to the level of Polish peasantry and all the rest of it. And the East European Jews had, had a, had a, um, a love-hate with Gretz, which eventually resulted in this guy, Sheffer, Shalpinchus Rabinowitz, who was a religious Moscow in Warsaw, and he said, I'm translating the whole Gretz from beginning to end in Hebrew, and adding my art scroll notes. You see? So he changes a little, he says, I respect him, he's wrong about the Ostjuden, he's wrong about certain aspects of Yiddish guy. this guy was much more religious, and so he would produce a Yossi Fun to Gretz's Josephus, if you follow what I'm saying. And that's the best uh, way you can get a Gretz tool today. It's called Gretz Scheffer. it's around, they, they sell it from time to time in stores, and it's the whole Gretz, and he'll say at the bottom, he doesn't fake it out, he said, Gretz here says the Polish Jews are jerks. Here's why we think he's wrong. Gretz says the Abishitz was no good, Emden was right. Here's why we think Ebeshivs was right. You understand what I'm saying? And he has whole excursies in the back of the book. So it's a bunch of 10, 15 fat volumes. The effect upon Zionism is seminal. All the early Zionists got turned on by Gretz. The young Ben-Gurion, the young Chaim Leitzman, Am, that's how they conceived their idea of the Jewish people, you, you can't understand what it is before somebody wrote this. He just had a, a, a blank picture of the past. So you can agree with his tights or disagree, but now you have a structure to look at. Uh, in America, as usual, the uh, American Jewish establishment screwed it up. Henrietta Zoll was paid by the Jewish Publication Society in the 1880s, I think, when she was at the beginning of her career in Philadelphia to translate Gretz, leave out the footnotes. It's useless without the footnotes. It's useless without the footnotes because... You know, all you get is his rantings at the top. The interesting part is, where's his sources? And his sources are very illuminating. And that's where he really makes his arguments. But the Jewish Publication Society, run by Judge Salzberger and people like that, they said the American Jewish middle class doesn't need to all that, you know, academic stuff. Just give them things that they can read on a Friday night in Philadelphia, you know. And, uh, and the result is it caused a lot of harm because the whole Jewish generation grew up reading Gretz, but the worst version of Gretz. It's useless. The Hebrew one is worthwhile, the, the English one is, is less than worthwhile. It's a cultural disaster. What else is new from the uh, federations? The Frumworld? Oh, my goodness. Gretz is a dangerous book. Hildesheimer founded a whole seminary to fight Gretz. I'm serious. Rav Israel Hildesheimer, he said that the noxious influence of uh, Professor Gretz is so bad because people think that he's okay because he wears fillin' and keeps Shabbos, and it's really terrible, and he made the seminary in Berlin to fight against this. Uh, problem is nobody could upschlug Gretz. So the professor of history at the Hildesheimer Seminary used Gretz as the text. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? He they learned this, except he said, we don't agree with this, we don't agree with that. Meaning, it's easy to criticize, and it is, but it's not easy to write 12 big uh, volumes full of notes. Um, the Lithuanian Rosh Hashivas, uh, read the Hebrew Gretz, but they, but, they, but they cussed it out. And so it's very famous. I'll talk about it in a couple weeks. weeks. Lesley Gordon, the founder of Tells he would, every once in a while, give a whole speech and say, Gretz is terrible. He said this and this and this. is all baloney. That's how the students even heard about it. Then they went on to read it. You know The old line. Um, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the uh, yeshiva world will publish somebody who actually writes a, a point-by-point uh, rebuttal, so to speak, of Gretz. That's what I'm going to speak about uh, next time. I'm leaving that for the next lecture. Let me uh, conclude by saying that Gretz's his history is one of the most important books of the last 200 years. Like it or not, Gratz made the academic and even the non-academic study of Jewish history a major discipline in modern Jewish culture. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.